Rock and roll. It's your daily dose of all things Gamecocks on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Here's J.C. Sherbert. Inside the Gamecocks podcast, J.C. Sherbert here with you. Sending you into the weekend here, Friday, January 29th. This weekend is the weekend before the Super Bowl. I don't know. I think uh, I think maybe I, – I don't know. I, I don't like the two weeks before the Super Bowl thing. I, I just, I'd like to just be done with it. But I guess it kind of does take two weeks to get everything together and uh, all that good stuff. But this weekend's usually like, ah, it kind of hits you in the face that football's almost over and basketball – Gets into full swing game. Guys, do have a basketball game this weekend, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't think I am. Uh, big win for the Gamecocks the other night, 83-58 over Georgia. That's their ninth straight win in the series, and the Gamecocks now have a 59-58 lead over Georgia in the overall series. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken – and I, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so I'm probably wrong. I, since the Gamecocks lost those three times to the Bulldogs in 2015-16, which basically cost them the NCAA tournament, uh, I still think they should have gone anyway. Then, uh, you know, since that happened, I don't know that the Gamecocks have lost to the Bulldogs. Maybe they have. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Nevertheless, big win, 25-point win. Looks like Frank Martin mixed his defenses up. In fact, according to Kerry Rich on the bigspur.com, if you're a VIP member, you can read his article. Uh, he broke it down and said they're playing a little bit more zone. That's probably smart because this team hadn't been able to guard a bucket of water, to use a Will Muschamp-ism, cover a bucket of water. Uh, and, uh, you know, the 109 points after the Missouri points and the – LSU points. I mean, you, you knew Frank Martin was going to switch something up, and it seemed to have worked. Uh, so we'll see kind of what happens with the game this weekend at Vanderbilt. It's a 7.30, 8.30 p.m. kickoff um, – or sorry, tip-off sent uh, Eastern time on the uh, SEC network. Uh, up in Nashville, a chance to go out and re- avenge a bad loss. I'm sorry, the score for Georgia, 83-59 was the final. Um, you know, Vandy, they've had their struggles this year. I don't think they've won an SEC basketball game, uh, lost, you know, but, but they're getting better. You know, they played Florida within seven the other day, three point loss at Kentucky. Kentucky's not very good this year. Wins and losses wise, you know, they have talent, but it's a chance to get a road victory and kind of spruce up the old resume, get back going uh, and then there'll be a big one Wednesday night in Gainesville. If Carolina can manage to get out of the gutter uh, and beat Vandy this weekend, then you go to Florida, uh, the Mississippi State, Van- Bama, and Ole Miss with a three-game homestand. That's the season there, folks, because then you go to Tennessee and, and you know, you got some road games there at the end. Um, so some chance for, a chance for some quality wins. We'll, we'll see what happens, though. Um, I uh, I'd like to say – that I'm confident this team could turn it around and make a move towards March Madness. I just I, – I don't know, and I don't have any faith, uh, not just for Carolina, but I, I don't have any faith the selection committee is going to do anything different than what they always do, which is look at the what's now the net ranking. And that thing is calculated so much. You, you get so many points for wins 
so the more games you play and the more games you win, that boosts your ranking, uh, boosts your ranking up. So I, 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 I don't think they're going to be forgiving for COVID cancellations. I, I, I think they may give some lip service to it, but you know, I think sort of the t- it is what it is. So I don't know if the Gamecocks have enough, you know, barring winning out, uh, they have enough left, you know, opportunity left to make this happen. But there's some awfully good teams left on the schedule. Uh, Bama, uh, obviously, is really, really good. Um, Missouri, again, you know, they're really good. Uh, road game at Mississippi State, road game at Florida. Uh, end of the road game at Bandy Road wins count a good bit. So we'll see sort of what they do. Um, I'll, I'll say this. I think this team's good enough. Um, it's just kind of been one of those years with a lot of challenges. Uh, you know, the non-conference yet again comes back to sort of haunt Carolina in a different way uh, because they had, you know, three games canceled that they probably could have won all home games good enough to win. Uh, and a road game at Kentucky and a road game at Ole Miss, they could have won in a home game against Tennessee. Those would all have been resume boosters. That Carolina certainly has the talent uh, to win. So that's the basketball spiel here. Des Kitchings has left the program. Uh, the running backs coach of South Carolina. You guys have heard me talk about Des a lot uh, for probably like a decade now. Uh, and, and so for me, always believing that Des Kitchings was a great solution to have on the staff and, and a no-brainer member of the staff, uh, to me, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things that you can't just look at it and say it's no big deal. Um, I'll, I'll say he's going to be hard to replace. Um, people don't realize kind of the work that went into even holding on to the recruits Carolina had during the transition, and Des led that way and led that charge kind of the de facto recruiting guy there on campus. Um, it, it's a shame that COVID happened and he didn't get out on the road uh, to see players, but he still landed a guy like Caleb McDowell uh, who will probably make an impact on the program. And, you know, his, his impact is probably not just something you you look at and see, well, who did he sign when he was at Carolina and all that. You know, obviously his running backs had really a really good year, really good years, all of them, you know, uh, Maybe not Zaquandre White, but Zaquandre was sort of late to getting to campus and struggled with some injuries and stuff like that. And he, he moved to defense later in the year. We'll see if he doesn't stay there. Um, but even he is like a tremendous team player. Uh, Rashad Amos, when he got his chance, looked good. Uh, Deshaun Fenwick, who went to Oregon State, probably looking for more carries, uh, had his best year, very consistent, 5.5 yards per carry for Deshaun as that second back. And then we all know about Kevin Harris. Uh, and then, you know, Marshawn Lloyd sitting there too. So it, it it's a deal where Des Kitching's impact on the program will be felt. Um, I do think that, uh, you know, getting the job with the Atlanta Falcons, uh, which is what he did coaching running backs for the Falcons is a good career trajectory for him. Um, as a Falcons fan, I, I, I was not too fired up about the Arthur Smith hire, to be honest, but um Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sit there and claim I'm this expert on NFL coaching hires because you really don't know. But you know, if, if they're successful there and they put up good numbers on offense, you know, Des can move right on up the, the, the ladder at that level. Uh, you know, in fact, somebody was talking to me the other day said that guy could be a head coach in the NFL one day. You know, he's he's that good, got that kind of demeanor, that type of ability to coach to know the game and to build relationships. So hats off to Des Kitchings. This was not like the other 
departures where the three guys that went to Auburn and then ultimately Rocker went to the Eagles, uh, where it kind of caught some people off guard and, you know, nobody kind of, I mean, this was something where Des Kitchen communicated with everybody throughout the process and just a life changing deal. You know, when you get to go coach in the national football league, uh, with that organization, uh, and, and it makes sense, you know, and, and if you're going to have coaches leave, you know, you want them to go to good places. You just don't want them to take any old job in <laughs> uh, any old job for more money. Uh, you know, and, and, and if we look at it realistically, Auburn is a good place, you know, and they're starting over with a new staff. Um, so they've got some longevity there on the plains. Uh, Auburn is traditionally a great program, um, you know, so you had three guys go to Auburn and then one bolted to the Eagles. So you're really two at Auburn, one with the Eagles, one with the Falcons. It's not like these guys are just leaving for, for chopped liver. Um, you know, in most cases it was, uh, it was one of those things. So, you know, and I, and I think too, that had Shane Beamer and Ray Tanner decided to, you know, go all in with Mike Bobo and Will Friend, they'd probably both still be there, but you know, you, you look at it and it's, at some point you, you you feel like you need to pay market value and pay guys what they're worth. And, you know, if, if a school wants to overpay uh, and you're not like going to, you know, your program's not going to fall apart if they leave and, and you can easily take the offense in another direction. I, I think that's the decision you make. Uh, but I want to make clear that the Des Kitchings departure w- was nothing like, you know, the, the previous ones, uh, uh, you know, so that's the deal there. Taylor Edwards, uh, new director of player personnel comes from Maryland. Started this week, uh, so you're gonna you're gonna see a lot of offers. And uh, look for the VIP room on the BigSpur.com tonight. Uh, John Little and I have, have contributed to it. Hale McGranahan, lots of recruiting stuff. As we start to turn the page to 2022, now this 2021 group is not finished. It won't be finished Wednesday either. Uh, I think there's more guys, potential transfer portal additions. Uh, you never know when you're going to get a late qualifier, uh, you know, JUCOs that you can, you know, technically enroll in, in August to count toward 2022, but they can still play this year. Uh, there's just a lot, you know, of potential maneuvering. Uh, and, and I think you're going to see another wave of players in the portal following spring practices across the country as well. Uh, but uh, Taylor Edwards is there. So you're, you're going to start seeing some movement with 2022 offers going out. Uh, and the board starting to, to sort of take place or take shape. I've noticed Tory and Gray in particular has been really active. And then last night, Pete Limbo offered a defensive end from uh, Towson, Maryland, Baltimore area, and an offensive tackle from Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania is a good spot to go get offensive linemen, by the way. That's, that's, a, that's a good move on the part of Pete Limbo, Greg Atkins, of course, uh, was involved. Mike Peterson was involved with those guys as well. So we're going to be talking a lot of recruiting and personnel uh, as we move forward along with basketball, even after signing day. So stay tuned uh, to right here. I've got a bunch of of mailbag questions, and I've also got a uh, a hard deadline. I'm going on a uh, a podcast uh, as I, as you, I told you guys. I, I don't know if you guys know this. We, we both uh, we got back from Disney World you know, uh, with a vacation a couple of weekends ago, went during the pandemic, had a really nice time. What was, you know, took kids, the kids liked it. And, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it was good. So I'm going on men who do Walt Disney world podcast, uh, with my good friend, Matt and his crew. Uh, I got that right here coming up in 49 minutes. So I'm going to, I'm going to squeeze all these mailbag questions in, 
uh, and give you guys a great send off into the weekend. So we had many on Twitter uh, and the, you got two ways to get the mailbag tweet to at the big spur pod. And that uh, we're up over 500 followers, which is good these days. Uh, it used to be you had like follow Friday and you could build your, your followers on Twitter pretty, pretty quickly. These days it's tough to get to that number. Um, the big has 44,345. <laughs> uh, me personally, I think I have, um, I think I have around that too, maybe 44, 45. Um, but to get to 500, uh, in this amount of time, I think it's tremendous. So thanks for those follows. Also, Follow Inside the Gamecocks on Instagram uh, for good stuff. Um, so Joe Sports Caller tweets at us. Uh, he says, can you break down uh, Gother and Brown as comps? Who specifically has a quicker release? Uh, I, I think Brown has the quicker release right now, uh, but Gother could end up being that way because I, I do think he has a quick release. With Brown, you got he's got a little different type of delivery, uh, so it doesn't necessarily look – like this lightning quick release, but uh, it, it's quick enough. If you actually look at the speed with the balls coming out of his hand, that type of thing. Uh, I, I think Brown's more physically mature. You know, you got a kid here that's 6'4", 230, uh, a big, thick kid uh, with a strong arm. Colton's still got to fill out. Uh, I've said many times, Colton sort of, it, it, you know, long-term, he's somewhere between Blake Mitchell and Charlie Whitehurst. Um, and I know Blake Mitchell was rated higher. I'm talking about career-wise. Uh, and Blake was pretty good when he was on, if you remember correctly. Uh, I think that's the kind of quarterback you're getting with him. He's not a, a big runner, but not a statue in the pocket, which is what you look for these days. You want somebody that can throw first and foremost, and then somebody that can you know, not just be a sitting duck back there that can throw on the run and all that good stuff. Um, you know, so, so right now, I would put say Brown's ahead of Gothier. Um, long term, who will end up being better and having a better career? I don't. I don't know. You know, it's it's hard to say because a lot depends on who they bring in in twenty twenty two as well. Uh, what can Luke Doty win the job this year? What will Brown's role be? You know that kind of stuff. So we'll see uh, how all that 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 breaks down. But that's a great question, Michael, and I certainly appreciate it, uh, Justin says, what was the reason Muschamp didn't recruit the other kid that ended up in Tennessee? He says, Bryce Thompson. Um, they did recruit Bryce Thompson. They had Bryce Thompson committed, uh, and they were waiting for some academic things to take place, so he didn't sign early. Uh, and then there were some off-the-field things um, that, that meant, meant he did could not get into South – couldn't go to South Carolina. And, and I'll just leave it, leave it at that. Um, it wasn't a situation where, you know – South Carolina athletically did not want him. Uh, in fact, it was quite the opposite. They, they really liked the kid uh, athletically. And they liked him as a person, too. Just one of those unfortunate situations that pops up. I, I'm not going to get into the details, but, um, you know, that's kind of the deal uh, that happened with him. But, yeah, they, they did. Muschamp did recruit him, uh, and they had him committed, and then he, he ended up going to Tennessee. Now, the other – the other kid from Dutch Fork, Jalen Hyatt, the receiver that was a freshman there this year, the, the Muschamp staff passed on him. And it looks like, based on social media posts from his family, he's he's excited about the Josh Heupel hire. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, there, there were rumors he may transfer or whatever, so that's, uh, that's what's happening there. And then he's got a brother, Devin, that the Gamecocks have offered, and they are recruiting him 
uh, pretty heavily. Okay, so those are all the questions off the Twitter account at the Big Spur Pod, and I appreciate them and like to answer those. Uh, and so we go to the inbox. This is inside the Gamecocks at email gmail.com. Gmail.com. Hey, JC, just wanted to first say thank you for all the work you put in the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. As a Gamecock living in the heart of all country here in the Northeast, you've kept me more well-informed than I think I've ever been on the comings and goings of our program and have made my 45-minute commute to work seem shorter. My goodness, that's a big commute, man. Uh, There were times when I lived in Nashville. That's not Northeast Tennessee. But Nashville, um, when the roads were clogged, it was 45 (laughs) so i can relate i don't have to do that anymore uh with mike yuva confirming des kitchings is leaving for the program for the nfl how would you feel about bobby bentley returning as running backs coach i know you've spoken highly of him in the past it seems to be a quick and efficient solution i haven't heard any rumblings behind the scenes in a while about bentley so i'm not sure if we burn any bridges there keep up the good work um i'll tell you this bobby bentley is is in line to get a passing game coordinator job I think it's at USF with Jeff Scott. Uh, so that's kind of a step up title wise. Um, he, uh, you know, he wants to call plays and be an offensive coach. That's number one. Number two, he's not a candidate for uh, the running backs job regardless. It, it's a situation where uh, he's just, you know, not a guy that, that, that they're really looking at nothing against him. Um, and I don't, I don't know that he'd be totally interested and, and that's nothing against Shane Beamer on his part. It's just, you know, passing game coordinator is really more what Bobby Bentley is. I mean, he's a talented guy and can coach any position on the offense, probably except the O-line, and I'd give him a shot there too. Um, But passing game coordinator, working your way up, uh, that kind of thing, that's a smart move for him uh, to go and do that. So uh, you can cross him off the list uh, as far as the, the running backs coach job goes. Um, and I'll add this note, too. I didn't talk about it with Des Kitchings. Chris Foster from Georgia Southern was thought to be in the mix for that job. You can cross him off the list as well. Um, it will be. It will not be Chris Foster. So cross off Chris Foster, cross off Bobby Bentley, cross off Marcus Lattimore, uh, and we'll see who Beamer and, and the offensive staff ends up hiring. All right. So this comes in from Mike. Uh, or I miss Sophie. JC, I always love the podcast. Not so much a question here, but as a complaint. I think you're just a couple of years younger than me. So you grew up in the era of Gamecock football. I did. I grew up idolizing the players and coaches in the Morrison era. Now that I've got kids, I still have a passion for Gamecock sports, but I don't live and die on the outcome of every game. Maybe it's living through the last six or seven years in every men's sport minus the final four run, but I really miss the way things used to be. Perhaps I'm in the minority, but with the transfer portal and such, I think college football is heading in the wrong direction. Being a football coach was my second profession choice if medicine didn't work out. And uh, looking at things, I'm glad I went into medicine. Heck, it's hard to even watch career football at the high school level anymore with kids transferring, going to private schools, IMG, et cetera. The community feel is gone, except in small towns. I guess I'm just a dinosaur that will still pay his dues and buy his tickets. Thanks for the listen and keep up the good work. I, I agree with you. Uh, I miss Sophie. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I still have hope for college football. Uh, and I think those, there's a lot of things that have happened that have fractured the sport and a lot of changes that are coming 
that, that, that are going to be not appealing to, to fans that are used to like college football is about tradition. So traditionally you go recruit these great high school players, maybe take a couple of JUCOs and, you know, it's like planting a seed and then they develop in your program. And then if they're good enough, you know, really, really good, they may go pro after three years, maybe not. Um, very few transfers in football, you know, compared to basketball in some schools, you know, have been successful shutting transfers, not, not even taking transfers like Clemson, you know, they, 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 they're going to get into the pool, play it. They're going to be ball. They're going to be players in the portal. Clemson is now because it's reality, but uh, you know, you, you had that sort of, and that's all kind of a family feel because you get used to it. So I think that that's something that is kind of a crack. I think that the pandemic is definitely a, a crack because it, it, it ruined the, the family feel. I mean, I've talked many times on this podcast about how Carolina football is about family. It's about, you know, going for generations out there in that parking lot, uh, flying the flags, eating some chicken, throwing the football, drinking some ice cold ones at, at times, you know, uh, and, and everywhere from the, the fancy condos to the cockabooses to fairgrounds parking to the, the folks that get over there on Shop Road. Uh, and buy their spots weekly. Uh, you know, I, everybody has that bond, and that was just missing this year. You didn't have it. And, and I found that to be something that bothered me and worried me more uh, as the season went on, not just for the Gamecocks, but for the whole sport. I mean, I'm sitting there looking. It's 10 minutes before kickoff, and Bama's playing Ohio State. It's Alabama versus Ohio State in Miami. Uh, that, that stadium should have been packed. Um. And it wasn't because it couldn't be. Uh, and you're sitting there looking and you're like, this kind of looks like the stadium about two hours before kickoff normally. Uh, and, and, and so that's part of what makes college football special too. And see, that was missing this year. And I think all of us were sort of just at the point because the, the, the you know, there were just no sports from March until till July. Uh, and, and it's like, I think we were all just so focused on, hey, at least there's a season that we kind of look past that. But as the season went on, it, it, it wore, you know, it, it wore on people. And, and it, 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 the product does not, at this point, when you just consider this past year, it does not look the same. Uh, and, and then on, on the heels of that, you do have the transfer portal thing and the name image likeness thing. So there's just a lot of change uh, coming all at once. I have hope and, and I miss Sophie. I, I think you would agree with me that the vaccine – uh, is going to get things back to normal by football season. Uh, you know, I don't. I think we're going to have to live through a March Madness with no fans and uh, some things like that. But I mean, I have my opinions on what the NCAA should have done with March Madness. But uh, I think it should have been May Madness. But uh, you, you look at it, and I think you know maybe by the College World Series, you know, the, the baseball playoffs, you'll have uh, things getting back to normal. But I am confident that by football season it'll happen, and, and that'll bring some of the magic back. And I think from the Gamecocks specifically, uh, and I didn't talk about the schedule coming out, but the schedule is very favorable when you look at it. it, it it's, it's almost as good as it possibly can be uh, for this particular program at this particular time. I mean, you know, you, 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 look, you look at it and you, you open with Eastern Illinois that, you know, there's bigger problems than – anything if uh, if they don't win that one um at east carolina they're not back to the east carolina as old you always got to be careful with a mike houston coach team you know then at georgia in the traditional spot that's going to be tough but then kentucky at home troy at home 
you know, Kentucky took Carolina to the woodshed in a game last year that uh, probably could have been closer had Carolina not been playing the third string defense. Uh, and Luke Doty had a bad game up there. It was the last game, uh, you know, but you should beat Troy uh, at Tennessee. How good's Tennessee going to be next year? I, I don't know. Knoxville's brutal. The three times Carolina's won up there, it's been 16, 15, 14, three and 15, nine low scoring uh, rock throwing contest. Uh, but then you got Vanderbilt at home. So, you know, six out of the first seven games are winnable. I'm not saying they're going to win every one of them, but they're winnable. You know, then you go add A&M. That's going to be a challenge, as it always is. Uh, bye week. Florida comes to town. The Gators lose a lot of personnel. Are they just going to reload, or, or what What are they going to be like? But it's in Williams-Brice. Um, and then you go and at Missouri. That's a game South Carolina needs to win, you know. Uh, it's not like Missouri is this juggernaut superior football team than South Carolina. It was a seven-point game this past year. And, you know, losing two in a row in that series, if you're South Carolina, is sort of unacceptable. Um, but still, you know, it's on the road, so you got to do it. And then Auburn comes to town. Uh, I think, you know, they they have a first-year coach. Who knows what they're going to look at look like in November before the Iron Bowl. And then Clemson, obviously – with 11 defensive starters coming back, it's going to be a bear yet again. But you, you actually break down the schedule, and, and, you know, if South Carolina can get their personnel right, uh, if if we have a situation where, you know, just getting these guys in the right scheme and in the right place uh, can allow their talent to to go if they if there is that talent there. You know, because I'm of the – some of are of the opinion that, there's all these misevaluations on the roster and that there's player people that can't play. Uh, and I think in some positions like receiver, they need a talent influx, but I think other spots, you know, you scratch your head and wonder why these guys aren't better, you know, the last couple of years. And so I say all that to say this winning and, and Shane Beamer getting off to a good start uh, and the Gamecocks, you know, scratching out six, seven wins again to a bowl next year in year one. Uh, is going to go a long way. Playing competitive football is going to go a long way. So uh, I think that, you know, that's that's the that's the cure here, along with, you know, everybody kind of getting back to normal because of COVID and all that. Uh, thanks, Sophie. Appreciate this. Um, so Jim says, hello, JC. I'm reading the book, Game of My Life. I'm in the Willie Scott chapter. Someone I got to see play along with four years of George Rogers. I was on the four-and-a-half-year program. The extra semester was to squeeze one more fall football season in as a student. My last year was when George won the Heisman. I was in the horseshoe for the ceremony. My, only, my question is related to the last paragraph about a player, of never having a player hired back as a full-time coach. I don't exactly count Connor Shaw as he was converted – uh, maybe as a Hail Mary, whatever. Can't think of any former player until Eric Kimry. I was at the fade game. The place exploded with noise and stayed that way until the end of the game. As I'm, am I missing something? I enjoyed the podcast. Nice work. I'm in Raleigh, by the way, but still have season tickets. This this book is, at the time, this was accurate. Um, but it's it's not, not now because Rodriguez-Wilson was – a Gamecock and and on the staff uh, this past year. And 
You've had Marcus Lattimore around the program. I don't remember did they promote him to coach running backs or something. I don't remember that if that happened. Uh, and now you have Eric Kimry, who's a Gamecock. Um, you know, but as far as full time assistants go, I think uh, Rodriguez Wilson and Eric Kimry are probably the top two. That's going to change rather dramatically. Uh, in my opinion, in the coming years, because you have so many guys from the Spurrier era out there that are coaching uh, that are really, really good. Um, and, oh, but Cedric Williams was promoted offensive line coach for the Outback Bowl in 2008 as well. But, um, you know, there's there's guys, you know, right now, Travell Wharton and Lim Jean-Pierre are offensive line coaches in the NFL. You know, so I don't know if they come back or not. Um, you got Travian Robertson, who's a rising star as a D-line coach at Georgia State. Cliff Matthews is coaching, I think, at Limestone. Uh, and I've heard great things about his ability to coach D-line as well. Uh, you know, so their guy, I think Pat DeMarco at some point will get into coaching and be really good at it. Uh, and that that happens when you start winning because you, you have guys that still have that passion, uh, that, that want to stay around the game and, and all that good stuff. Uh, and I think that's one thing that, you know, you, you see Rod Wilson and Eric Kimmer, you know, those – those guys played under Holtz, and so that kind of started it. And then all the Spurrier guys, uh, I think, are going to continue to to do that. I may be missing somebody. I'm just trying to think about it, and I may be missing somebody. But uh, I think I think when this book was printed, that was uh, that was the case. But uh, I think with Rod Wilson last year and then Eric Kimry, uh, that's obviously changed. Thanks, Jim. Hold the fort down up there in Raleigh. Joe says, uh, happy to see the schedule is out for the fall. Breaks my heart. I will be gone for the ECU matchup because I'm stationed 50 minutes from Greenville, North Carolina. Be back in town second half. Again, thanks for your service. Uh, he has two questions. Out of the Blue Bloods, Auburn, Georgia, Florida, maybe A&M, and excluding Tennessee, who does Carolina have the best chance of upsetting? My gut says Florida due to all that they have lost and be somewhat competitive in previous years. Uh, I, I think Florida and then probably Auburn – if you ranked it, because I, like I said, it's going to be really intriguing. I mean, Florida, they did, they had Trask for the bowl game, right? But you, you kind of look at when they didn't have those receivers and, and, you know, and then their defense was just a mess. And I don't know that they're going to upgrade. I mean, it's still a Todd Grantham defense. You know, I, I how good are they going to be next year? Now, they don't come to Carolina till November. So they have a chance to get some, good young players. They're always going to be a fast football team. They're always going to be able to strike on offense. Uh, they're always going to have, you know, fast headhunters on defense, even though their scheme I'm not a fan of. Um, so, so we'll see, but I, I, I agree with you, Joe, that Florida is the one that sort of stands out. Plus you get them after a, a bye week. And if I'm not mistaken, the, 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 the Halloween weekends when they play Georgia. So, you kind of get them right there, uh, having to come to Columbia. That's that's a uh, that game is sort of drifting back towards its traditional spot uh, on the schedule. That it's usually in, in mid November, uh, but early November is fine too. That Florida South Carolina deal. So that's the deal there. And uh, he goes uh, number two. I know you like scenarios, so let let me throw one out at you. Say we take care of the three early non cons, and we do get in fact six wins. Fourth Vandy, fifth UT, uh, with a depleted roster, and who's the sixth? I, I'm going to say 
Kentucky at home uh, is the one you look for, and then and then Missouri and Florida. You know, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Vandy. That's 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 what makes the South Carolina job great. And I know, gosh, you're sitting on two straight against Missouri, and the six out of seven against Kentucky is just ridiculous. But you know, it, it doesn't take much for Carolina to build back to catch those guys. Right. Especially now had Tennessee gone seven and three this year and signed a top five class and Pruitt's rolling and everybody's happy and there's no turmoil in Rocky top. Then, then maybe you say, yeah, Tennessee, all of a sudden you, you're going to have to build a little bit to catch back up with them. But obviously that's not the case. And so you got four division opponents that are your peers, you know, Vandy, Tennessee, Missouri, Kentucky, the SEC North is what I like to call it. And and if you're South Carolina, you know, th- there's no reason on earth why you can't almost immediately during the Shane Beamer era compete with those teams because you're already competing with them. It's not like, you know, I know Kentucky got out of hand this year and, you know, you lost by four to Tennessee at home and, you know, because you made mistakes uh, you know, you, you lost by seven to Missouri uh, when you had to switch the quarterbacks out. You know, Kentucky was ugly and you beat Vandy 41-7. So, you know, you're not that far away despite going, you know, one and three against that bunch last year in, in the worst year since 0-11 record-wise. So, I uh, I think that that's what you do. You know, you Missouri-Kentucky, you know, right now. Uh, and Florida, you know, as far as the upset. So you can even get this, you know, that that's even seven. So we'll see what happens there. Drew says, long-time listener, first time writing in, enjoy the podcast, especially your takes. I listen to most other Gamecock podcasts and enjoy your perspective. Thanks. I appreciate that uh, you listen to all the podcasts. I, I think this is a, a new Gamecock ecosystem, and the more people that like podcasts, the more listeners we have, and, you know, someday we can make some money off this. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I've got some other things in the works too. If you like listening to me, uh, you know, obviously you got the JC and Morgan college football podcast. There may be some live show opportunities for me coming up. Uh, and I'll talk about that when the time is right. But uh, if you enjoy listening on this format, uh, certainly love to have you. Uh, to listen to your show today, you mentioned Alabama as an outlier for having so many four and five star players. What is your opinion on the blue chip ratio? An article I read showed that no team for the BCF or playoff era has won a national championship having less than 50% of their roster with four and five star players. Clemson in 2016 was the lowest percentage at 51%. Yeah. In, in national championship wise, because it's hard to win a national championship. I mean, Clemson, I mean, name a team besides Clemson. That, that has built gone from like, Hey, you know, under Tommy Bowden, Hey man, we really hope we win the ACC Atlantic this year and go to Tampa or Charlotte or wherever to, Hey, we're the number one team in college football. And it took 10 years. Uh, and, and that, that roster for 2016 barely squeaked in. Cause if you go, and if you really counted on, you counted the guys that were actually doing the playing, you know, the starters, uh, it's it's not fifty percent. There wasn't fifty percent of those starters, um, and a lot. And there are a lot of guys too that the Gamecock fans toss away ratings wise. You know when when you know, 
you sign a Brian uh, or Shy Smith or Brian Edwards, and those guys end up being pretty good. And they're rated like 90, which is the lowest four star. JJ Anibari, lowest four star. People tend to toss those guys away. Well, that's if you look at Clemson, that's Wayne Gallman, Ben Bulware, Mike Williams. How good were those guys? You know, um, but if you want to win a national championship, that that you can't argue with that. But winning a national championship and, and getting in position to do so is a process. Um, and, and Alabama's an outlier because I think they're sitting at much higher than seventy percent four and five star players, and and they've signed the number one recruiting class I think eleven out of twelve years. And, and so nobody else is really doing that. You know, you still look at Clemson and they have a higher percentage now than they did. And most of the time, if you notice, the the the, the blue chip ratio usually goes up on your roster after you start winning, not before. Uh, and so how are you getting to the point where you're winning and thus your recruits get better? So, th- and that's what Carolina needs to do. I mean, they're sitting there two and eight. You know, I, I mentioned the SEC North, Missouri, Kentucky, Vandy, Tennessee. That, that's what Carolina's got to worry about right now. But, yeah, you're absolutely right as far as national championship. And I think the blue chip ratio gets confused because people are like, well, we don't have a chance if we're not 50% in the blue chip ratio. That's not true. That's strictly about winning a national championship. That's strictly about that. You know, so if you, you're winning the whole thing. And I, I think right now you got to crawl before you can walk. Carolina's got to. You know they got to they got to win the division first, and there's a lot of division winners over the years that don't necessarily fit that in all conferences. So that's the deal there. But that, that look, I, I'm a fan of the blue chip ratio in terms of when you're talking about teams that can win the whole thing. But I'd also like to see who is over 50 percent in the blue chip ratio that went five and seven. Uh, you know what's uh, you know, what are the teams out there that have a lot of blue chip players but that are underperforming? And I bet you'd find a lot of them. Um, maybe not. But, yeah, that that's the thing. I, and and I, I say all that because, you know, I was in that business. So, of course, rankings matter and star ratings matter. And you wouldn't have it if, if, if it didn't matter. But, it, you know, people that freak out and what it's become is – people start to trash good three-star guys and act like, oh, well, you know, there's these four three-star guys that Carolina's got and they hang their head. That stuff, because of social media and and the fact we're all connected these days, that permeates. And your guys, your players, uh, end up having a mental thing, you know, and and maybe they're just as good or better, uh, you know. And and I think that kind of – that cloud kind of hangs over your program. Um, because it, it, there's a ton of three-star guys that end up in the NFL, you know, uh, percentage wise. Uh, yeah. The higher percentage of four and five star players get drafted than three stars, but there are you know, a thousand three-star players every cycle. So there's a bigger ocean. Um, and I think you gotta, you gotta go catch the right fish and you got to be skilled with it. But, yeah, I mean, look, you always want to add four- and five-star talent if you can, especially fives. You know, fives are at least going to be starters, you know. They may not all be first-round draft picks, but they're going to at least be starters most of the time and help your team. Uh, I think four-stars, you got to evaluate the right ones because I think there's some some ones that that I would not take, you know, at all. I would never offer them. Um, and uh, I would offer probably, you know, three or four, five, five, three-star players at the same position over them 
because you get really, really, uh, you know, subjective uh, when you get down into the uh, in the three star range or four four star range. But yeah, your top 100, 150, you know, you need as many of those guys as you can, and and you know, some of these guys I mentioned Mike Williams and Ben Bulwer earlier, especially Mike Williams. You know, Mike Williams is rated a ninety. That's the uh, lowest four star you can get, and he ends up being a first round pick. You know, um, same with Brian Edwards, you know, and, and then you have your Debo Samuels who were rated what 84 by the composite, uh, you know, who rated Debo a four star though. Yours truly. I think that was one of my last big recruiting wins <laughs> in that cycle that he came in as far as a good ranking goes. So thankful for Debo for, for playing like that. But yeah, that's my deal there. Thanks, Drew. Noah says, I have no ill will towards Des Kitchings. He deserves an NFL job. Wish him the best of luck, hoping he, he succeeds. Even if I can't stand the Falcons, Noah's a Panthers fan. Any chance Jay Graham is the new running backs coach? Um, you know, Shane Beamer and Jay Graham know each other. There was some talk early. Jay, Jay though, is the special teams coach and tight ends coach at Alabama. And he took that job. It got official the other day. Um, Mark wants the uh, – Says, looks at thoughts on the schedule. Says, need to go three and one in September. Uh, I I agree. Uh, I think, you know, people are tired of losing to Kentucky, and you certainly don't want to lose to East Carolina or Eastern Illinois. Um, and I and I broke it all down. I think there's a shot. It sets up to where you can have uh, a four and one start, which would be great for the game. Really, five and one. If Tennessee is, you know, they don't miraculously patch holes and, and Tennessee's not going to be as bad as we think. It's at, it's in Knoxville, so you never want to go up there and say, oh, yeah, they can win. Um, and then Vandy comes to town. So you got, you know, until you go to A&M on October 23rd, you have one game that you sit there and go, and hey, it's going to be tough, and that's Georgia and Athens on September 18th. So, I think it's a very favorable schedule, the first part of it. Um, and then people are going to look at the names and go, God, A&M, Florida, at Missouri, uh, you know, because Missouri, I, I have a prediction Missouri will be everybody's SEC East darlings uh, this offseason because they really had a good year. Uh, Eli Drinkwitz had a really good first year. Um, but it's still Missouri, you know. Uh, and then Auburn's coming to town. It's kind of a question mark, but it's still a, a big six school. And then Clemson. Yeah, you know, so November looks like a bear, but the first part of it, you know, it's it's a great opportunity for Shane Beamer and staff to to get some wins and momentum and to get back to a bowl. So I agree with you there. James says, JC, random thought, would this be a good year to pull Spurrier and play the first game on a Thursday? Once we became established under Spurrier, we didn't necessarily need to do it, but it was nice when we were building to have everybody watching the Gamecocks on opening night. Yeah, I – it's Eastern Illinois, though, that, that's coming in. If it were a conference game or, you know, one of the neutral site games in Charlotte, uh, as long as – I mean, like, so the Thursday night in Charlotte against North Carolina was a disaster because some genius decided, all right, we're going to kick this bad boy off at 6 p.m. <laughs> it may have even been 5.30 uh, on a work day in downtown Charlotte. I mean <sighs> – genius i'm sure it was tv but if they if they kick that off at like 745 right give everybody a chance to get in the stadium all that good stuff 
the neutral side games would be good. I just – now, look, Arkansas played a Thursday night game against some uh, team, scrub-type team, um, I think two years ago, maybe Sam Houston State, somebody like that. So, uh, they'll throw that on the SEC network. But, uh, you know, start of a new era. And, and, and I'll say this, that, uh, you, you know – you have um, the Spurrier era started on Thursday night and the Muschamp era started on Thursday night. Holtz era started on a Saturday, I believe. It was an NC State game. But, um, yeah, playing on Thursday night to open, I wouldn't have a problem with it. I think it would be it'd be good. And then you give nine days to prepare for East Carolina. Addison says, enjoy your podcast at the Big Spurs and must read every time, several times a day. P, please keep it coming. My question, given the extremely tight control and information interviews and access to practice under Coach Muschamp and the resulting frustration on the part of fans, can we finally expect to get a looser handle in terms of relations? It seems that it'll be important to rebuild relations with fans and more access would be a great start. I agree. I think Muschamp made a mistake being that closed down. Um, when, when coming in and I think he made a calculated gamble and almost, you know, you look at the first three years, everything was fine. He tripled the win total. Um, and then that seven and six team, uh, in 2018 was probably a disappointment all told, but had some good moments. So things were kind of, you know, setting up for 2019 to be a really good year. And, uh, I think he banked on the fact that if you start winning, nobody's going to care. But, you know, he was not a popular hire to begin with. Uh, I'd say Shane Beamer's probably got 80 to 85% of the fans behind him. I think Muschamp was more about 65 when he started. Uh, and, and, you know, part of that is accessibility. And I, I think part of it, too, is the, the fans and, and, and us, the insiders, you know, the people that get information out of the program – you know, we didn't we didn't know some of this stuff was was bubbling under the surface because you looked at it on the surface and you, you talk to people you hear and all you hear about is how all the players love Muschamp and how Muschamp's a great players coach and they love the staff and they, they work hard and they make good grades and nobody's getting in trouble. And you wonder, well, why the hell are they losing on Saturdays? I mean, you know, these guys have talent. Um, and I think that part of it was, you know, we – you know, you hear things from trusted sources, and but you're not in the building every – or you're not even close to the building. I mean, you're not even watching practice. And uh, I, I think, you know, when Spurrier used to open practice, it wasn't like – and look, COVID – I'll say this, COVID's going to play a, fault, a part in this this spring because you can't, you can't have a super spreader event at a spring practice, okay? That's just not – but I think opening a scrimmage, one scrimmage in the summer – uh, something like that, no video, that kind of thing. I, I think something like that is going to be um, going to be a uh, a thing Shane Beamer does. You know, Beamer loves the passion of the fans. Uh, I know Virginia Tech, when he was up there with his dad, was a very open type of situation. Uh, of course, he's been in some closed ones too uh, at at, uh, at Georgia with Kirby Smart. But you know, Spurrier opened all that he could. You know, he opened less and less as his tenure went on because people were up there videotaping scrimmages and stuff. But um, I think that, uh, you know, I I think I think you're going to see assistant coaches talking more. 
Beamer talking more, being more accessible, and, and a general, a more open policy um, as we move forward. And I kind of like their social media game so far, too. I think it's it's kind of fun. So, all right, I'm going to make my deadline. Rolled through this podcast today, folks. Be sure to go to Apple Pods and um, rate us five stars. Subscribe. Some of you listen are not subscribers. It doesn't cost anything to subscribe. You just hit the subscribe button and it gives you a little notification every time we have a new episode. We're also on Spotify. You can also find this, this podcast all over the bigspur.com and everywhere else you find podcasts. This is J.C. Sherbert. This has been Inside the Gamecocks. Everyone have a wonderful weekend, and we'll talk to you soon.